when I was growing up, uh, I was really a, was almost like a hustler, gangster, whatever. When I was five years old, I was going to big time dances, bands, and James Brown been here when he first started out. I was there. I mostly was the only child there because, you know, now when I was five years old, Memphis Slim, he's been here. Duke Ellington's been here. I mean, at that time, this was booming because of the coal fields. I mean, they had houses everywhere. You're listening to Shoe Buddy, Higher Ground Radio. I'm Alexia Alt, your host for this episode. In this episode, you'll hear stories by and about veterans from Eastern Kentucky. We started off this show with Rutland Milton talking about his service in Vietnam. In addition to being a veteran and retired coal miner, Rutland is also a Higher Ground cast member. In December of 2015, several Higher Ground cast members visited the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. During that trip, Rutland discussed his experience and inspired us to create a show about Rutland's story and the story of Appalachian veterans. You'll hear Rutland throughout this episode as he discusses his experience in Vietnam, his experience after the war, and the lasting effects of war. This show contains content that may be triggers for some audience members, particularly those who have served. My family came from Birmingham, Alabama. My father's from Birmingham, my stepfather's from Birmingham, my mother's from Bessemer. And probably know about some of the parts about the story about Limestone where he would bring the black, black families to Kentucky at night in the trunk of his car. But my stepfather, he was a hustler and a gambler. He never did work in the coal mine. Only thing he did was gamble and he was a bootlegger. Well, sometimes he'd go up in the halls, get his moonshine, and that's where he made his money. And one time, believe it or not, we had a big flood in Lynch. He didn't believe in banks. He had his money heat up on the mountain. And we spent a whole day one day drying money on a warm morning heat. And I mean, it was a lot of money. And I was sneaking a little bit on the side for me. But he knew exactly how much money he had. I couldn't even that side down on the side. We never did go home. We always had food on the table. I always had clothes on my back. When I finished high school, out of 65, I was top 10 in my class. We integrated in 63. I got a scholarship to Southeast Community College. And I went one year. But I was young and wild, and I wanted to see the city. So I quit college and went to New York. And I worked at Fish Body Chevrolet. And I said, I would never buy a Chevrolet in my life, which I never have, because I messed up a whole lot of six-day Chevrolets, put them together and all this stuff. And uh, I got drafted into service. And I came back home. And when I came back home, I went down to the recruiting office. And he told me, if I signed up for another year, I wouldn't have to go to Vietnam. And like a fool, I signed up for another year. And Vietnam was the first place they sent me. And the whole year that I was in Vietnam, the only thing that kept me alive was thinking about that man that lied to me. Because my mind was going to determined when I got back to the States, I was going to kill him. But when I came back from, from the Vietnam, they had moved at me. Moved the recruiting officer and they never did find me. But I'm glad they did, had moved because I'd probably be in jail right now. Patriotism is an important part of Appalachian culture. That patriotism is woven into the heritage of coal mining. 
Coal mining was introduced to Harlan County in the early part of the 20th century. International Harvester and U.S. Steel built large coal camps in Harlan County in 1911 and 1917, respectively. A photograph in the Appalachian Archives at Southeast Kentucky Community and Technical College shows a coal gone filled to overflowing and decorated with American flags. A caption along the bottom border reads, First shot at the Kaiser from Lynch, Kentucky, November 1917. This photograph highlights the sentiment that for many Appalachians, coal mining was serving your country. Many of the coal camps and coal companies built in the early 20th century were built to support the demand for steel during the First World War. Appalachians have carried the burden of military service, often serving and dying at much higher rates than the national average. This phenomenon is known as the Sergeant York Syndrome, named after Sergeant Alvin York of Pall Mall, Tennessee. Although York was a conscientious objector, he came to understand that serving in World War I was his duty. York received the Medal of Honor for his service and was one of the most decorated soldiers of World War I. Another example of the Appalachian patriotism during war is Breathitt County, Kentucky. Breathitt County was the only county in the United States that did not have to enact the draft during World War I because they received so many volunteers. Although the cause for these higher rates of service and casualties is unknown, theorists propose that the cultural value of patriotism or high rate of poverty may contribute to this statistic. Traveling across the country just as dark as it could be The light reflected on the windows, Lord, I just can't hardly see Got a hurting down inside me, Lord, I cannot stand the pain And it gets awfully cold and lonesome at night on the train Sometimes feel forsaken when I'm traveling alone Like being in Alberta, Canada When Tennessee's your home And the day you got on board Thought it was Sunday drizzling rain And it gets off the cold and lonesome Memories of sunsets and loves I've left behind All these times that I've traveled just to find That the fading dreams and visions of the friends I've lost and gained Make me awfully cold and lonesome at night On the train Left, right, Lord, I cannot find my rest. I'm weary of this traveling, but this way seems the best. Been a lot of places for my living. I pick and sing, and it gets awfully cold and lonesome at night on a train. 
memories of sunsets and the loves I've left behind all these times that I've traveled just to find that the fading dreams and visions of the friends of lost and gain make me awfully cold and lonesome at night on a train. You just heard Cold and Lonesome on a Train by Sparky Rucker. Up next, you'll hear a story about Jenny Ramsey, a teacher from Benham, Kentucky. This story is told by Maria Lewis and Kenny Collinger. Jenny Ramsey began teaching at the Benham School shortly after its completion in 1927. Although she was a new graduate from Eastern Kentucky Teachers College, Jenny quickly proved her dedication to her students at the Benham community. In addition to teaching senior English, Jenny also worked with students on the Benham High staff, coached basketball, and sponsored other clubs. During World War II, Jenny corresponded with many of her students who were deployed overseas. She kept a collection of letters and postcards from these students. In this letter, dated March 25th, a former student named Carl describes his routine since leaving Benham. Dear Miss Ramsey, Tried to find time to write you before this, but I've been on the go practically every minute of the day. On the 14th of March, I left Cumberland headed for Huntington, West Virginia. On the 15th of March at about 2 o'clock in the induction center at Huntington, I took the one step forward that made me a private in the Army. We left Huntington at about 7.30 and arrived in Camp Atterbury, Indiana. And that was Saturday morning of the 16th at 5.30. From then on, up until the 22nd, we were processed and given our uniforms. We left Camp Atterbury on the 22nd. Brother, this army really moves around. The trip down from Indiana was nice. We passed from Indiana into Kentucky across the Ohio River. Our train, a troop train and a sleeper, stopped about halfway across the river and we had a wonderful view. You could see a lot of destruction caused by the flood and the water was still muddy. We also passed close by the Bowman Airfield and saw several bombers on the field. It was a thrilling sight. The scenery was nice and all. The fellas liked to look at the pretty girls. Although there was a lot of fun in the trip, there was a lot of sadness, too, to see the older and the married waving at their little children. You could tell by the expression on their faces they were wondering about and when they would see their own kids. After we left Kentucky, we passed through Tennessee. Most of Tennessee was crossed during the night, by morning, we were in Georgia. As the train moved along, you could see cotton fields and other nice rivers. Of course, no cotton was in bloom, but you could see the plants and where some cotton had been left on the plant. This camp is nice, but the Army's tough. Now, I shan't say how I like the Army yet, because their extensive training don't start till tomorrow. But down deep, I keep thinking of the time when I will be killed or will kill. What a thought. Just now, one of the fellows in the barracks come up and said, how would you like to have one of these stuck in you? He had a bayonet in his hand. The thing that was through my mind was, how would you like to stick one into someone else? Perhaps I will soon forget this, though. Well, I guess I'll have to stop now. We have to fall out in ranks in a few minutes, and I need to get my uniform on. We're going up to a variety show tonight. 
Everyone has to go, but I would anyway. Answer soon. I would enjoy a letter. Yours sincerely, Carl. Jenny's collection highlights her passion for her students and her love for the Benham community. The collection includes letters, scrapbooks, sheet music, programs and tickets from Benham High Functions, photographs, annuals, and much more. To learn more about this collection, please contact the Appalachian Archives at Southeast Kentucky Community and Technical College. first came back to Vietnam was kind of hard because uh, I was a MP dog counter in Vietnam and like when we had ground attacks at night the dog hunters had to go out and pull a sweep to see how many were living and how many was dead and all this shit but the bad thing about that when you pull a sweep when you go out there you see a child and you don't know whether you killed that child or who and that would have got to your mind for a while I mean you know but you look at it this way, the way it was, they had to get killed by their own people. About, they didn't have no choice to live, as far as living was concerned. You know, and that's, that, 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 I, well, for a long time that kind of touched me. And I had to go in and see uh, to the VA hospital for a while, just try to clear my mind. But eventually, you know, you never forget it. But, you know, I got better as I come along, you know. Then you have to get As long as I had some knock by my mind working or something like that, I was all right. The Labrador tree, that one dog had nine hounds. And he was a point dog. If one hound would get shot and knocked out, the other hound had to take it over. And 
I didn't want that either. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I, I say I was lucky in a way because you didn't have no say so. They picked you for that job. You, that, that, that's what you did. Mm-hmm. Because once you raise your right hand in that room to that flag, they forget about being nice. They stop being nice to you. They say, I'm your mom, I'm your dad, I'm your sister, I'm your brother. Whatever I say, you do. That's exactly what it was in service. You just didn't have no say so. You had to do whatever they tell you to do. It's a lot of guys in Vietnam who shoot themselves in the leg or something like that, just get back stay sad. I wasn't going to shoot myself. <laughs> that I didn't want to do. But a lot of guys did that and they didn't know. Just keep. But the bad thing about that, when they got back to the only thing they get, did was get a dishonorable discharge. And once you get a dishonorable discharge from the service, it's hard for you to find a job. And the bad thing about the Vietnam, Vietnam guys, guys with, with the Vietnam, when we came back and got into San Francisco, the thing that, you know, the people was calling us baby killers. I mean, yeah, you probably killed a child. Yes, it wasn't because we wanted to. And I went over to Vietnam because I wanted to be over there because, I mean, especially when you think about them children, those children didn't even have a chance as far as life was concerned. Like I said, we had to pull the sweep. You had to see you see a child, you know. And then, 11, not, not just boys, girls too. That's a bad thing, that gets to you. And for a long time, I just couldn't get over that. But you know, eventually, you know, you just get to meeting with people. The worst time, the worst time I had when I first came, if, if I was in a place by myself, I always wanted to be around somebody because I never didn't want to be alone. That's just that would come to my mind. But as long as I was around people talking, I was fine. And eventually, I just gradually, you know, I never, I never forget about it, but. I don't dole on, you know, try to think about it all the time. You get in a cave-in or a damp or something, running out of air, and you know it, and you search your pockets for anything, a store receipt, anything to write on, and then maybe all you've got to write with is your own blood. So you say, I love you in blood, because that's all you got room for. Well, I've been thinking about that, and, and, and I've got more to say. Elizabeth, my wife, you have been the making and the breaking and the breaking and the making of me time and again. I love you beyond what I can say. This language isn't big enough to say love. My sons, James and Paul, my daughter Melinda, I see myself in all three of you, my graces and my failings. You are the very wheel of time as it turns for me. You are my life ongoing. Can a man love something better than his own life? Yes, he can. Our home, my work, those things I do, my can of beer, the Corvette I've spent a small fortune trying to make run right, I love them too. Not in the same way, but I love them too. Let me say this. I love this life that is my life. I might as well say it. I would like to die an old man in a comfortable bed, but however I go, I'm going to be a little afraid when that time comes. I guess everyone is. But I don't want fear and regret to be the only things I'm feeling. I want to say this now. I have been blessed beyond what I can name or understand. 
I have loved and I have been loved and I have been amazed. I have been amazed. You just heard Robert Guype of Harlan, Kentucky reading Things to Say, a scene from Playing with Fire, Higher Ground's second original play. Before that, you heard Rutland Melton discussing his job in Vietnam and how it affected him even after he returned. And before that, you heard Bring Back My Mountain Boy to Me by Julia and Wade Maynard. You're listening to Shoe Buddy Higher Ground Radio, the veterans episode. Please note that this episode includes stories about war and death that may be disturbing to some listeners. Up next, you'll hear Scotty Caruba of Cumberland, Kentucky discuss his service and experience. When I was 17, there really wasn't a lot of jobs here unless you wanted to go into coal mines. And my father was in the coal mines, in which, I mean, I get about everybody's family, your dad and papa, my papa was in the mines. And uh, I was just looking for something different because my dad had got killed in the mines. So I was trying to find a, a, something else, a different occupation, and I wanted to serve. I was in the uh, Kentucky Army National Guard for about 23 years, and I served 9-11 in 2001, and I was attached to the 35th ID uh, Special Forces. I was an infantry for 11 years, and now I was a mechanic, which is 63B, for about 12 years, and I did both of the MOSs while I was down there. We did a lot of uh, recons which is just you go in and and gather all the information you can, pictures, sights, and sounds, and report those. And then, uh, like, like I said, I was a mechanic, too. I enjoyed it, actually. You know, it was pretty rough sometimes because, you know, you, you go without running water. You have drinking water for sometimes a few months at a time. Basic training will definitely burn in your brain and it'll stay with you for your, your whole entire life. Uh, you go in as a kid and you think you know it all and then you realize after just no more than a few days you don't know hardly anything and uh, you learn real quick or you know you uh, may not live to see the, the following day but uh, it molds you into a man, it gives you respect, and you learn to work with people because your life depends on it. So you have to work with each other, you have to trust each other. My most memories is, is your camaraderie. You know, you, you uh, live with each other, and you meet all, all walks of life. You get to go to different countries and meet people and show them their, you know, your way that, you know, you are and you're, you're the way you're, you do, you know, your training, your tactics, and they'll share, you know, their training and their living, you know, the ways they live, the way they eat. That's the most things I think I enjoy. I still, I try to call a buddy from time to time and talk to them because they know it better than anybody because they've lived it and it's, you don't know unless you've lived it. I enjoyed my whole time in. I'd hurt myself back in 2002, and it's just a injury that'll catch up with you when you get older. And I would still be in till today if uh, my back would let me. And our uh, unit had went to uh, 
to uh, you know straight leg from mechanized and that's I would have had to go back in the infantry or I wouldn't have got out but uh, there's nothing like a career in the service because you see the whole different side of, of life the freedoms people have nowadays they don't really you know realize and know unless you go to other places to where they don't have running water and they don't have the freedom of leaving their door, you know, unlocked or sleeping at night and, you know, knowing that more than likely, you know, you're not going to get hit with, you know, your own indirect fire from their own people. They live scared. You have freedoms. If you don't like your job, you can quit and go find another job. And over in the other countries, it's not like that. That's, I have big appreciation every day I get up I realize you know how much that you know what I have. During the 1930s and 40s Harlan County grew. By the time my grandfather was born right before World War II Harlan was the third most populous county in the state after Fayette and Jefferson. Coal was pouring out of here and Harlan was going strong. By the 1950s coal mining employment started to decline. People started leaving out of here. And now for people my age, the future looks real foggy. I've never liked big open places and millions of people around. I like the closed in feeling here. So why do I want to leave so bad? I can't see myself in my own home here. I'd like to, but I just can't picture it. I don't want to change Harlan's history. I'd love to have lived here when it was booming. I just don't see that happening again anytime soon. I wish it would. I don't want to say goodbye to the only home I've ever known. It seems like before, it was a lot easier to live here when my papa was growing up, and a lot more fun. Three, four. What you're saying about me Now I don't count And I ain't that smart Buddy, I know what you mean People come People go All of them try and see And all of this time What makes us still brother?
say I'm sick and I need a pill more than most of the land when all that's wrong is I need a job but the rest of you don't give name this songs uh, I know just what you mean which is a kind of a catchphrase around these parts for a long time I've sat here and watched people come and go and uh, trying to figure us out what we are as a people and what we need invariably they miss it so this is kind of a come back at you from my perspective to them I sat down one evening and uh, just thinking about how this place is always misinterpreted by people that don't live here. And we are deeply impacted by decisions that are made far away from here in the, both the public and the private sector. And invariably, we don't get what we need. We'll get one thing, but there's cause and effect and there'll be two things wrong. So with that in mind, and tongue-in-cheek, I penned this song kind of as an answer back to powers that be. We know what you mean, wink, wink. Please try to get it right. That was Rick Brock discussing his original song, I Know What You Mean. Before that, you heard Kenny Kohlinger and Devin Creech reading The Leaving, a scene from Higher Ground's Fog Lights. As Scotty discussed, the economy in Appalachia often encourages young men and women to join the military. In a place where unemployment rates are much higher than the national average, finding a full-time position with benefits is definitely enticing. Up next, you'll hear Robert Guype and Rutland Melton read Not Enough Heads, a scene from Foglights based on the death of Rutland's son, Little Rut. Got your reunion suit yet? No, man. I'm going to nap time this weekend again. Why you got to go to Indianapolis to get your suits? I go to Indianapolis to get my suits because I don't want to be looking like nobody else. If you get it here, if you walk down the street, you'll see somebody with the same thing on, and I don't want to see myself walking down the street. How's your daughter? She's moving out, I reckon, like the rest of them. She's got a job here? Yeah, I mean, she's RN out at the nursing home. Well, at least that's something, man. My son, he uh, couldn't find nothing here, so he decided to go to Indianapolis and work. And uh, one night he decided to go to a party. And this guy and his girl was arguing, and uh, he told the guy, you know, if you hit the girl, you'd be going to jail. So the guy got mad and went to his car and came back with a gun and shot him. And, you know, that was my only child. Well, uh, the main thing about this story, uh, we went up that weekend for Mother's Day. And uh, we went out. Uh, to the, I'll never forget it. we went out to the OK Corral, we had dinner and everything, and uh, we came on back home. And the rest stayed at, at the apartment about, I guess, about 11 o'clock. 
And him and his friend went out to go, to go to a party that was going on when we went to the party. Uh, well, his friend Grace was with him. He told us that this guy and this girl was arguing with each other. And the guy was getting ready to hit, to hit the girl. And the girl told us, man, if you hit him, he said, you know you'd be going to jail for hitting him. And he went, the girl and the guy got to argue. And the guy went to his car and uh, came back with a gun and shot him point blank in the heart. And they called, we got a call around by like quarter two in the morning. And for some reason when that call came, I just had that feeling. I had just had a funny feeling. And uh, they told us that the brother had been shot and on our way to the hospital. By the time we got there, he had died. And uh, they wouldn't let us go back there and see him. And I had to wait till that Monday to go get his you know, possessions and belongings and everything. And uh, it took almost four years before they caught the guy. To four years. We go back and forth in the numbers every time they thought they had it. My son, he just, he, was, he went up 21 years old. He didn't get to see what life was about. He uh, broke the Hall of County record as far as, you know, where I received him. And ain't nobody touched it yet. He's pretty smart. But Lorette was, I named him right, Reverend Von Melton Lorette was young, wild. I mean, he, you know, only, you know he's, he's just like me all over. You know, he just, he, but, he, now, you know, you talking about acting. Now, he was a good actor. I mean, he could and dance and sing. He could do all that. My background as far as military goes, it's pretty much all I've ever known. I've had two grandfathers that were in the military. One that was in the Army that fought uh, in Korea, in the Korean conflict. And then uh, my maternal grandfather fought in Korea as a Marine. And when he finished his enlistment with the Marines, he re-enlisted with the Air Force and later fought in Vietnam. And then my father, uh, I grew up military brat. He was in the Army. He was in the Army when I was born. I was born in Fort Hood. We lived in Germany. We just lived a little bit of everywhere. And basically, the men in my life, the men that were my role models, they were military. They had some kind of past as a soldier. You know, and they were all veterans, and it's what I expected, I think, out of all men. But it is an inherent part of who I am and how I appreciate this country and what we have. You know, my dad, I think he, he ended up being uh, the most affected. He um, developed PTSD, which he did not seek treatment for. Uh, but, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, I don't know how much that was focused on for our for our military, um, sadly enough, because Vietnam was such a traumatic experience, it, not one that I experienced, but just through my father's words and my grandfather's words. And um, I remember my dad, you know, in the middle of the night, I would hear something thump, and I would go running in their room, and my dad would be laying belly down on the floor with his arms over top of his head. And uh, to him, he was in the middle of combat. You know, you couldn't go near him, couldn't touch him unless you wanted to be swung at. And it affected him for years. It affected his personality, his relationships. My mother and father divorced. He was an angry man all the time. He, he just, he didn't develop good relationships, period, until probably about 10 years ago. He finally faced reality. He started going to the VA, and he sought treatment for PTSD. And uh, 
it was amazing the difference. Um, and sadly enough, he has to be medicated for an experience that he faced when he was younger. But but it made a difference. But in the long haul, made a difference for the entire family, for myself, my mom, his current wife. So it it affected everyone. Like I said, growing up military, military kid, um, I have a deep respect for anyone that has um, served our country. I appreciate them. And uh, I, not long ago, I went to, uh, it was last summer actually, I went to the um, VA hospital with my dad. We just went for one of his visits and sadly enough, you still forget how young your people are that are over there fighting. So I kept expecting to see these older gentlemen, my father's age, 60 plus, you know, 70s. And I think that it really threw me for a loop when I saw these young men, probably young enough to be my son, walking toward me or wheeling toward me without a limb or an arm. And that was a wake-up call for me. And I know the one thing that I want to do, I want to uh, complete uh, my nurse practitioner, and I would like to go back and to work for the VA because, you know, if in my heart, because of my background and how I grew up, I would like to give back to them when they come home. You know, what they went through, what they've experienced, and some of the losses that they've experienced might not be outward. I want to be there for them, give them the respect and the care and the compassion that they deserve and to give back to them what they've given to me, and that was the ability to go get my degree, and the ability to be a nurse and to be whoever I wanted to be, and for my children to be whoever they want to be, and that's important to me. That was the longest year of my life in Vietnam. Um, I got AIDS and orange on my skin, on my face, and I got jungle out on my feet, and they had to cut out my big right toe. And uh, when we came back, Vietnam, they didn't want to pay us nothing. In fact, it took me 45 years before I even got any money from the VA for the Asian orange in my feet. And that's just beautiful that. And, uh, but when uh, Asian orange, when you, a helicopter come around and put these, like it's insecticides, be spreading, it gets on you. I mean, my chest, my back, and everything. And, when I came back and went to the VA, it took one nothing wrong with me. Then when I showed my feet down the right, it said one up until they had cut out my toe. And it's just before that, that I got my money from the VA. Then they, get, they gave, well, the first uh, time they paid them was before that, from my agent orange. And this last time, uh, this year, they paid me for a jungle lot. And it took 45 years for me to do it. Really, when they give you the money, they want you about dead before they give you anything. That's really bad. And then they never did call it a war. They called it a conflict. And all those guys lost their lives for nothing. And when I got it, we saw two for Thomas Richmond and, um, and uh, Big Mill, was my uh, guys I grew up with. And, you know, they shouldn't even be on that wall. They didn't get a chance to see what nothing what life was about. And they got drafted. So, you know, so. Yeah, like I tell you about my friend I graduated with, he did and gone. This night when I was good. So. That was, was just bad for everybody.
Yeah. I don't know. But I ain't not going to say I was lucky. I'm, I was blessed, you know. It's, that's not luck like, like that. But still, I say, you know, I know what kept me alive. I was thinking about that man lying to me. But I'm glad he was gone when I came back from Vietnam. Because <laughs> I would have been in jail right now. That's where you'd be in the room. I never would have been in that ground. I'm so glad, you know, I'm glad he was gone us. When I look at it, it came out for the better. You just heard Rutland discussing the lasting effects of war. Before that, you heard Higher Ground cast member Joy Pennington discussing her military family and her desire to give back to veterans. Joy's story is much like my own. Seeing military service and the sacrifices people make ingrains a desire and passion to give back. This is my story. I was five when my dad was deployed for Operation Desert Storm. He was in the Navy Reserves at the time. We didn't live near a base and there were very few military families near me. My parents were concerned that if people knew that my dad was gone, they would take their anger at the war out on us kids. So they didn't tell anyone. Of course there were a handful of people that knew, teachers, church members, neighbors, but by and large we did not advertise that my dad was gone. There were four kids in my entire elementary school that had a parent deployed at that time. Me, my two sisters, and one other child. My teacher, Mrs. McCormick, knew that my dad was gone, but she didn't know how to treat me, how to teach me, so she avoided me. She let me play on my own and didn't teach me how to read. She was my teacher again in second grade. I was terrified of her. She was ready to work with me again now that my dad was back, but I still hadn't learned to read. I had lied and pretended for two years, and no one caught on. If I picked an easy book at reading time, she would yell at me. If I picked a harder book, I would just turn the pages periodically and hope she didn't notice that I wasn't reading a word. My parents finally pieced it together. After talking it over, they decided it was in my best interest to move me to another class and hold me back for a year to catch up. I saw Mrs. McCormick from time to time in the hallway. Years later, she still terrified me. After that, I became angry. She had failed me. She had left me to suffer alone. As an adult, I recognized that she was just another victim. You see, her brother had died in World War II. I suppose that she saw herself in me. She was terrified that history would repeat itself. Luckily, it didn't. My dad survived. He came home. Her brother didn't. She was left to deal with her grief, surrounded by people who opposed the war, didn't support her brother, didn't support her. We should do better by our vets, better by their families. Whether you support a war or conflict, support the people who serve, support the people left behind, support the people who grieve, support the people who continue to suffer when they return home. As I stated earlier in this episode, the idea for this episode came from a visit to the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. A group of a dozen young people from Harlan County huddled around Rutland as he searched the wall for the names of his classmates who died in Vietnam. It was a somber gathering. After googling their names and searching down the rows, Rutland finally found the names he was looking for and softly rubbed his fingers over the letters. I repeated his actions and was surprised to find how warm the stone was, even in the middle of winter. Rutland began telling us about his experience as we stood there. A park employee was raking leaves nearby and walked up to our group. Are you a veteran? he asked Rutland. Bretland said yes, he just wanted to see his friends' names. 
The employee held out his hand and said, Welcome home. Thank you for your service, and embraced Rutland in a hug. We all had tears in our eyes by that point. The most stunning part of this experience was seeing how stunned Rutland was to finally be welcomed home and be thanked. No veteran should go without hearing those two phrases. On behalf of the Shoe Buddy staff, I'd like to dedicate this show to our veterans, to the people who have served and continue to serve, to those who were killed in action, to those who died from the after effects of war, to those who are left behind. Thank you. Welcome home. Project of Higher Ground, a community arts program in Harlan County, Kentucky. Higher Ground is a project of the Appalachian Program at Southeast Kentucky Community and Technical College. Funding for Shoe Buddy and other Higher Ground projects is provided by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Appalachian Regional Commission, and the Robert E. Frazier Foundation. This episode was produced and narrated by Alexi Alt. Additional Shoe Buddy staff includes Devin Creech, Maria Lewis, and Marissa Rutherford. Music for this episode included Cold and Lonesome on a Train by Sparky Rucker from his album of the same name and Bring Back My Mountain Boy to Me by Julia and Wade Maynard off their album In the Land of Melody and I Know What You Mean, written by Rick Brock and performed by Rick Brock, Adam Brock, Kenny Kohlinger, and Alexia Alt. Special thanks to Apple Shop, WMMT, and June Apple Recordings. Our narrators for this episode included Rutland Melton, Maria Lewis, Kenny Kohlinger, Scotty Karuba, Devin Creech, Rick Brock, and Joy Pennington. Super special thanks to Robert Guype, director of the Appalachian Program at SKCTC. For more information on Shoe Buddy and Higher Ground, visit our website, www.highergroundinharlan.com. Shoe Buddy is now available on iTunes. Just search Shoe Buddy. S-H-E-W-B-U-D-D-Y in your iTunes store under the podcast section.